Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your middle-aged white male cis-hetero host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. As you're listening to this, South by Southwest has concluded here in Austin, Texas, where I live, and I'm going to talk about South by Southwest with fellow Austinite and Book and Film Globe contributor Omar Gayaga. Specifically, we're going to talk about the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which recently had its premiere at South by Southwest. But first, we're going to talk about the Pixar movie Turning Red, recently released on Disney+, Plus, that has created a lot of controversy and a lot of discourse, and Rachel Llewellyn has delved into all of that and will be here to talk about it with me. We'll be right back. I said that time may change me. There's been a surprising amount of controversy over the new Pixar movie Turning Red, which Disney Plus released this week on the streaming platform. And Rachel Llewellyn, our frequent contributor, is covering that controversy for us and watching the movie and writing about it as well. Hello, Rachel. Hello, I am here. Yes, great. So, and you are our own very own Red by uh, virtue virtue of your your social media handle. <laughs> so I thought you, you would be the appropriate person to talk about this. And also, like, you you pitched this to me um, uh, a while ago, saying that you were uh, interested in why Disney movies seem to be sort of pathologizing or obsessed, at least obsessed with puberty. Uh, you know, this is not the first, uh, Turning Red is not the first Disney movie that has covered this this time of life, but it is definitely the most controversial. It is definitely, especially with this movie, there are like layers and angles of controversy to this that like go beyond just one review. Once I started like reading a little bit about what exactly the the hoopla was, it it came from a few different directions. So it was sort of hard to like even focus on one aspect because the issues that spin off from a simple Pixar movie it can be really interesting as far as where folks are coming from. It it's. Pixar's first Asian female-led movie, as I mentioned, and so that's going to sort of attract a lot of, you know, uh, attention. And the primary, I guess, piece that a lot of people have fixed on is a negative review published by Cinema Blend's managing director, who, you know, stirred the pot by saying, you know, I can't relate to this. The demographic feels so narrow. It was kind of exhausting, you know, having this speed of anim- animation reflecting these manic hormones and just basically distanced himself from from the content and was quickly sort of called to task for that. He canceled even. I don't, I don't like to drop the C word, you know, polite company. But yeah, I would say that's a that's a good rendition of what happened. So he Cinema Blend it pulled it. Uh you can still find text of the review, but he apologized profusely, but um there's really no apology at this point. So they're really gunning to get him removed from the board of the Critics Choice Awards, which just 
happened, didn't they? Yes. So, okay, look, I mean, maybe his review was impolitic and wrongheaded and he didn't think things through, but why should someone lose their job over expressing their opinion? You know, I understand that his opinion might have been yeah, mildly racist, or at least un- unconsciously so, but but so what? I mean, it's subjective by nature. That there is a, there are varying degrees of responsibility that journalists put on themselves outside of you know these accepted standards, and I feel like the online culture has been more and more a factor in determining what gets out as far as criticism and what gets squashed. So it's a really interesting dynamic to see evolve on this platform and seeing how opinion journalism is almost reactive nowadays. Well, and you know, let's be fair, Turning Red is a movie that you would probably want to assign a female critic to or an Asian critic to, or at least a female critic to, because the themes interact uh, so much with the personal experience of the reviewer, but it's not like, it shouldn't be required. You don't, you don't need, you know, just like you don't need to um, be a woman or an Asian to understand the themes and turning red. Right. That's exactly right. And that was where a lot of the protestations were coming from that, that logic that, listen, this is addressing a pretty universal topic. We all, we should be pretty familiar with the plot by now. Basically the Maylee is a, you know, teenager approaching puberty and she's having conflict with her mother. And, you know, when she becomes of age, an ancient family curse kicks in, whereupon she poofs into this giant red panda when her emotions spike. It's a metaphor for growing up. It's a metaphor for those crazy hormones and, you know, extreme emotions that we feel. And it's something that is, I feel is fairly universal, even if the particular lens through which it's interpreted isn't something you're personally familiar with. I mean, right. So I guess where is the controversy coming from other than this one review? Are people uncomfortable with its depiction of sort of confident young female sexuality or coming of age? Is that, is that bothering people or people are, are people somehow intimidated by that? I feel like we've seen a lot of that in movies and TV in the last 10 years. Yeah, there's definitely, I guess I would say, like a menstrual overtone or metaphor that could be read into it, which could, I guess, produce some discomfort. But I mean, come on, anyone who's been through a remedial health class, I mean, this is this is basic stuff that your children are going to be learning about at this age anyway. And, you know, as long as it's, it's uh, rendered scientifically responsibly. I don't really see, you know, what the issue would be, but you know, you want to make sure that it's being uh, rendered kind of universally enough to appeal to people. And I did mention that Disney was going to release this in theaters and kind of didn't about face on that. So I don't want to draw super conclusions to that, but you know, read into that what you will. Yeah. I guess another, you know, my question for you is you've seen the movie. I haven't watched it yet. How does it fit in with the Pixar canon? You know, and and you mentioned other movies in your pitch to me, you know, uh, Inside Out and, and the like that are about this sort of a time of life. You know, how does it how does it mold in with these films? I think it fits into what they have recently released. It fits into that canon pretty well. Um, you know, I, I mentioned it. They really sort of try to shepherd the emotional aspect of it really trying to reshape that into some kind of 
handleable narrative for a child to process. You know, it's, it's things like going on a mission to reconnect with uh, a lost parent like they do in Onward. Same with Finding Nemo. Things with dealing with childhood trauma and Monsters, Inc. I don't want to get too academic about it. I mean, it's Pixar here, but you can sense kind of a running theme about this desire and this need to sort of somehow package this experience and render it, you know, emotionally relatable and resolvable. So it's an interesting approach for a large animation company to take, but I have noticed that trend in a lot of their uh, more recent stuff. And I would say that this film fits right in. <laughs> I have always been an adult in the age of Pixar. So for me <laughs> there, I, I just sort of watch them as, as narratives and, and watch them unfold. But I, I'd be interested to talk to someone who's younger than us, who literally grew up with these as their formative movies, how it affected the way they look at family relationships and growing up and sexuality for that matter. Absolutely. And that was the thing with uh, this reviewer, Sean O'Connell. I don't know if I've even mentioned his name throughout this podcast. I apologize. But he didn't grow up with this canon. And if he did, would he better be able to sort of understand where this narrative fits in? But the the whole thing, if you were at all remembering that era, it's fun to watch. The whole thing is just fun, rounded, you know, pastel edges, just this fun anime vibe. You know, when the character sees something cute, their eyes get all big and dewy. The director talked about how she, she is the director's a fe- woman, right? Tell me she, yes. She um, was influenced by Sailor Moon cartoons when she was a kid. And, and the, the characters, when they have see something they love, their eyes turn into hearts. Yes. It's got that anime, that anime, an old school kind of innocent anime vibe to it. Definitely. And it dovetails with just the overblown emotions of adolescence. That sort of hyper rendering is really appropriate. And I thought it was a fun way for them to try to combine old school 2D animation and into like modern 3D renderings. And like, I mean, that's a mixed bag. A lot of people will say that the attempt fell flat, but I personally saw a lot of several scenes where I was pretty impressed by the animation. So I I would take that with a grain of salt, watch it yourself, and you decide whether you like the quality or not. Keeping in mind that it's supposed to be sort of a mishmash of like 2D and 3D features. All right. One more thing, too. There are a lot of original songs in the movie because one of the things that the main character is defines the main character is that she has this super crush fandom on this boy band. Um, that sort of designed after the classic boy bands of the 90s. And Billie Eilish wrote the songs for the boy band. How do those songs hold up? Oh, they're dead on. That that I can tell you. That is a little before my time. I was in college in 2002, but I, I was listening to the music at the time, and it's, it's, it's spot on. I think she did a great job of rendering that style. I, I would not be able to tell the difference if you – gave me a a pair of headphones and both songs like an an original you know backstreet boys song and one of Billie eilish's song i probably wouldn't know the difference (laughs) all right well we're old and we're reviewing we're still reviewing kids movies for for (laughs) a living but that's okay it's good it keeps us sharp right oh and i will say this like there were so many comparisons drawn between this film and teen wolf which, like, hey, Sean O'Connell should be able to relate to that movie, right? It was, like, around that era where, you know, sort of, like, this beast alternative personality standing in for puberty and how he sort of leverages that personality for 
social popularity, you know? So there's a lot of themes that, you know, again, are universal and we, we can all relate to this movie. I'm guessing that unlike in Teen Wolf, they don't use a slur against gay people in this movie. (laughs) Definitely not. Yeah, no, not at all. One of the more shameful aspects. That and Long Duck Dong are the most shameful aspects of childhood movies. And you know what? This movie, this movie makes up for all of that. So we are, we are forgiven. Kids today, they're, they're, they're in some ways being uh, injected with much more wholesome entertainment stuff. So, Rachel Llewellyn, thank you so much. Turning Red is now on Disney Plus and everywhere in the online discourse. Yay, awesome. That was fun. Come on, everybody, let's tear it up. If you want mad skills, you can share with us. I want everybody to stop and stare. And you know why it's me. For those of us who live in Austin, Texas, the return of South by Southwest in person this year has been a cause for celebration and also annoyance because it leads to a lot of traffic and long lines and hard to get dinner reservations. But it is back, and I am very grateful for one. I've always both uh, – I've had a love-hate relationship with South By, but when it's good, it's really, really good. And I have Omar Gayaga, an Austin uh, reporter and writer and frequent Book and Film Globe contributor here with me. Hello, Omar. Hey, Neil. Good to be back. Yeah. So I saw you at South By. You know, it's like it's one of those things like it's like seeing uh, Goofy at Disneyland. You got you to gotta see Omar uh, at South By because you all <laughs> – because you always, uh, you know, you always do it up. You go to all the activations. You go to panels. You cover it widely. Um, and where I saw you was at the opening night of the film festival. I got in line uh, very early on a very cold day. It was like 35 degrees outside, which is freezing for Austin mm-hmm. um, in March, particularly. Uh, and I was sitting on a cold sidewalk. I was like 10th in line for everything, everywhere, all at once which is the new movie from the directing duo called The Daniels. Um, both of them are named Daniel. Daniel uh, Scheinert and Daniel, is it Kwan? I believe it's Daniel Kwan, yeah. Daniel, Daniel Kwan. Kwan, yeah. And they and they have this new movie out, uh, which is a, I guess it's, it's sort of like an indie rock take on the multiverse concept that the Marvel Cinematic uh, Universe does. And man, I'll tell you, this thing was... It blew me away. This movie literally blew me away. I I have never seen anything quite like it. And I think you share my assessment with that. Oh, it's it's absolutely uh mind blowing and and but um I think the most surprising thing about it, I mean, because the trailer, I mean, if you watch the trailer, it, it it's clearly built around uh Michelle Yeoh, who we'll talk about, I'm sure. Um, and you know, just all of these identities that she has across these these uh, multiverses. Um, and so uh, you know, w- that you expect, you know, you expect it's gonna be very visual, it's gonna have a lot of like back and forth and 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 kind of reality bending and martial arts stuff in it. Uh what I don't wasn't expecting uh, was this very, very heartfelt tear-inducing family drama, you know, about a, about a, a Chinese-American family really, really falling apart. And and this, you know, the, the metaverse stuff is really a metaphor for um, all of the choices this this uh, this uh, immigrant could have made uh, in her life before she kind of ends up in, in this kind of failing marriage uh, with a daughter who she doesn't understand and a failing laundromat that she's running. So, like, it, it, it really has a very strong beating heart at the center of it. Yeah, this failing uh, Southern California laundromat. So the premise 
again, like this, like you said, this all could just be a metaphor for family reconciliation. But the premise is that the multiverse is shattering because uh, an, an evil uh, woman named Jobu Tapaki has taken control of, of reality. And Michelle Yeoh's character is the only person who can tap into the power to try to stop her. And they choose this version of the character because she's so ordinary and has made so many bad choices that she has infinite potential because she's done nothing with her life. And so the idea is that you can jump into your other realities and access the powers. Omar, is your cat meowing? <laughs> My cat is, it wants to chime in, yes, apparently. I guess your cat likes movie. Anyway, so it's very high concept, but, you know, and then in order to tap into these powers, they have to do something statistically improbable. So you have these scenes of, like, people eating boogers or sticking things up their butts or stapling things to their forehead. It, it's eating chapstick. When, when, the, when the guy ate the chapstick at first, I was like, what the hell is he doing? And then they explain it. And, you know, it makes sense within the confines of the movie. So you have all this like reality bending uh, sci-fi stuff, too, uh, which is extremely um, it works really well, I think. Yeah, and I, I think it would fall apart if, if a the filmmaking wasn't as good as it is. I mean, it, it visually it holds together very, very well. There's some really clever filmmaking happening. Uh, a lot of very clever use of special effects and just different uh, types of, of looks. Um, and then, but the performances, you know, is what holds it together. I mean, it, this is really stupid, absurd, juvenile stuff that you know in in some parts of the film, but with the very, very grounded, fantastic kind of career defining performance from Michelle Yeoh, and then and then the you know the supporting actors in it as well well kehi kwan who played who played short round in indiana jones and the temple of doom for all of all things is the male lead and he's fantastic in this yeah it, it works i mean and, and those performances are as silly as these actors uh are asked the things they're asked to do are very very silly and over the top and crazy and you can just imagine you know kind of the, what what went into that uh on the acting side of things uh but i mean based on some of some of the q a after the film i mean it sounds like they really took a lot of input from the actors on kind of grounding that part of the film. I mean, these are, these filmmakers were, are known for a Swiss army man, uh, the, the Daniel Radcliffe uh, movie, which I never saw, but I, from what I hear, it was, was, you know, very interesting and bonkers, but, but not, not a lot of heart to it. And this, this seems like a, a very big jump forward for them in, in filmmaking. That movie was uh, deeply bizarre. It had some heart, but it was, it was very gimmicky and, and deeply bizarre. You know, Daniel uh, Radcliffe played sort of a, flatulent corpse that helped this guy sort of connect with certain aspects of his reality uh, reality i don't know it, it was strange but uh the, it, it didn't have the epic scope of, of this movie and you know and, and it works really well and i, I wanted to uh, also mention stephanie sue who plays the uh daughter of michelle yo and kehi kwan and you know she is like she's not a very well-known actor but she i thought she was terrific as the sort of quote bad guy and also you know but she plays a lot of different roles in this movie and i, I thought she brought a really brought a lot of depth to the part yeah she she has to kind of do that same thing that michelle yo has to do where she's playing kind of multiple versions of of this of the character uh kind of to the nth degree and you know as someone who has two daughters approaching you know their teenage years it's like I don't see enough movies with the daughters as the villain <laughs> with you know, like just trying to connect and understand your daughter. And, and that's the, that's the antagonism. Like I, I don't see a lot of movies that take that tack and this one does it brilliantly. I thought just sort of the, 
you know, there's an element of the movie where the mother is trying to drag the daughter back from sort of the abyss, you know, trying to drag her back from the, you know, as represented in the film as an everything bagel of, of sort of nothingness and, and I guess, depression and nihilism. And I thought that was just brilliantly handled and just visually, maybe to the point where you could say that, it, that it's a little on the nose or a little bit too much, but but it just it just carries it with su- such a plum. I thought I thought the movie was just really fantastic, well put together, and I think it's one going to be one of those films where either either it's too weird for the marketplace and it just doesn't go anywhere and it becomes a cult hit, you know, just kind of something that people watch and, and admire, uh, or it's going to be this big gigantic, you know film that 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 wins Oscars because I think certainly Michelle Yeoh's performance at the very least is, deserves an Oscar nomination. Yeah, I I can't tell which way it's going to go honestly. You know, it's being pushed by the Alamo Draft House here in Austin as one of their Draft House recommends, but sometimes those movies like you said, they have their fans among the kinds of people who used to frequent the aisles of independent video stores, but then then they don't ever break out widely. Like I'm wondering how it's going to play, you know, 30 miles north of here in like Liberty Hill or, or, you know, the suburbs. It's weird. It's a weird movie, but it does have, you know, but it also has, you know, like you said, it's like a strong Chinese American component and it could play well in China itself, you know, so it has a lot of potential to be a big breakout. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a 24. So, and they've, they've done well marketing movies that seem unmarketable, you know, your, your midsummer type movies, you know, that, that seem like, like, what is this, you know, and somehow they find a way to make them seem very zeitgeisty. They, they, they find a way to kind of make them seem the movie of the moment. And I hope that happens with this film because I think a lot of people need to see it in a theater. I think it is very zeitgeisty, both because, you know, the family drama stuff uh, it always plays, but also, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, anti-Asian violence in the culture. And I think there's a lot of call for like a very, you know, for deep explorations of these topics, which, you know, indicated by like how much the debate over turning red. I I was about to bring that up. Yeah. We we talk about, I talk about that earlier in the show with uh, Rachel Llewellyn, you know, and it's like, you know, this movie has a a similar, um, it doesn't have a similar vibe, but it, in some ways it does. And, and and it's just part of a cultural moment. And I, I'd i be interested to see what happens if it breaks wide because I, I would like for this to be a movie that lots of people are talking about and not just you and me. Now, one more thing before we stop talking about this movie. There are a couple of set pieces that you know I think that are going to be talked about if it does get talked about. One is the hot dog fingers. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, Jamie Lee Curtis is all over this movie as well. She's like a supporting, almost like a Greek chorus supporting character but there's a reality in which she and michelle yo play lesbian lovers in a reality where everyone has hot dogs for fingers and have to use their feet to do everything and when people get aroused their their fingers squirt ketchup and mustard <laughs> so weird and then yet i found those scenes you know as the movie goes on you know at first it, it's just played for you know visual laughs that one was very emotionally resonant for me i i actually got very choked up you know later on as as that develops into something oh it's not just a bunch of stupid you know visuals it's there's actually a real emotional love story there right and and then the other the other one of course is a bit more absurd and that's uh Rakakuni. i know that <laughs> i almost don't want to spoil that i want people to kind of get that thrill for themselves when that seems like such a it's, it seems like a, a, a kind of tossed off joke you know about her her mispronunciation of the of the film Ratatouille, but then it actually plays out. Yeah, that when that when that reveal happened, I I really busted a gut. You know, and I, rare it's rare to have a movie actually make me laugh, but that was that was that was quite quite the reveal. So you know, just keep in mind if you're seeing this, keep Rakakuni in mind, and uh, you you will not be disappointed. 
and I don't think they're, I, I don't know if you'll hear about this much, uh, maybe in some reviews, but, but they actually got real life Randy Newman to do, to sing for this character. Yeah, I was looking for that song online, but it is not yet available. Uh, there's oh, I think it's going to be a thing if this movie hits. I think that is going to be a thing. Because I, I, honestly, like, you know, when you see a movie at South by Southwest, I couldn't hear the song because the audience was screaming. You know, it was like it, every, mm-hmm. every action sequence was met with like a standing ova- ovation of applause, you know, and it, I probably, I'm going to have to see this again in a in a theater where there are fewer people. <laughs> And, and and the quick cut nature of the movie. I mean, there's so many, you know, kind of little montages or, or parts where you're seeing Evelyn, uh, the main character, through all of these different filters and, and different dimensions um, where, you know, it's the kind of movie where once it's on streaming, you're going to want to pause it and kind of see what what's all there. You know, there's so much that, that goes by so quickly that you can't catch everything. Your, your brain can't process it all. Yes. All right. So you and I had the similar reaction to this, which, you know, I I'm pretty uh, tough. Uh, watch you know i i don't i don't give a lot of things five stars you know and uh there there was no question in my mind when i was done with this movie what i what i had to say about it you know it's like this is a very strange masterpiece even if even if, yeah even if it doesn't resonate with you just the audacity of making a movie like this <laughs> you know it just in bonkers indeed all right everything everywhere all at once uh don't do not hesitate to see it when you have a chance uh, so, all right, let's talk a little bit more about uh, South by in general. Now, it you know, I you have been, I think, more around it than I have. I've certainly seen mm-hmm. some movies and 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 bopped about a bit. And by the time um, this is uh, a, a completed podcast, I will have also enjoyed some rock and roll and even sung a little bit of rock and roll. What's your sense? I mean, is is this a is, you know, it hasn't been in person since 2019, and it was already kind of shrinking a little bit even when uh, even before the pandemic where, where do you see it it now um i i don't feel like it was shrinking at all i feel like 2019 may have been the peak um i i feel like it, that was the year where i felt it was the most crowded the hardest to get into things the most activations um maybe it was scaling back a little bit just just from the economy but i mean i th- i think you and i had talked a lot in 2000 17, 2018, 2019, as these activations were emerging, these Game of Thrones and Amazon activations, you know, people dumping huge money into these interactive, oh, the Westworld, you know, the Westworld experience where they're at. A real live Westworld. I mean, I didn't get to go to that, but my God, that's something that looked incredible. Yeah. And I think they did, they were doing a little bit of that in 2019. I think they did a Game of Thrones type thing uh, along those lines that year. But um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't see it as uh, a scaling back at all. And, but this year, definitely, I, I noticed just as far as foot traffic, as far as being able to get into things, as far as panels not being full, um, I noticed a big difference this year. I mean, I, somebody was asking me last night on Twitter, you know, what what's the attendance? You know, which we never know that until you know, like much later. Um, but the last attendance I think I saw, as far as just you know, badge holders, actual attendees, not just you know, foot traffic, was I think seventy thousand for 2019, 79,000, something like that. Um, and if I had to guess, if I had to just pull a number out of my hat right now of what it's like this year, I would say between thirty-five and forty thousand. I don't. I think it's about half, solid half. I was going to say about half that. Like I'm just, it's just not. I don't feel overwhelmed, you know. And there's not even as much. There's not even as much to do. And you know, that's just a result of the pandemic. There are still uh, segments of society that just refuse to, uh, you know, gear up fully yet. But I think by next year it will be uh, back, back in action. Um, I wanted to uh, real quickly uh, get your uh, a quick take from you on um, another a movie by Jenny Slate from Jenny Slate. She uh, 
She's also in Everything Everywhere All at Once. She plays a supporting mm-hmm. role, but there's she has a, wielding a Pomeranian yeah. as a weapon. <laughs> she has a memorable fight scene. Uh, but she has her own movie uh, at South by this year, and then, and I saw you wrote about it on uh, Austin three sixty, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, this is based on the shorts from I think two thousand ten was when they started, and I think they did three of them uh, through two thousand fourteen, and and this was Jenny Slate doing the voice of a. And stop motion animated shell with little shoes on and, and a googly eye. Marcel. Uh, Marcel. Marcel the shell with shoes on. And uh, it, they were directed by Dean Fleischer Camp, who ended up marrying Jenny Slate a couple years later. And then divo- and then they got divorced. In they, they consciously uncoupled. It, yeah, but they but they continued to you know make this movie, which I think they, I think he said in the Q and A took about seven years to make. Um, so we've been waiting on this movie for. I mean, you know, if you are a fan of the web shorts, which were very cute and and adorable, um, this has been a long road to get to a feature film. And and he explained in the in the Q and A like we you know that they had to find a story that was worthy of expanding that world to that degree. And and really, what they ended up with is a very meta. Uh, kind of meditation on loss and loss of community. I mean, I think there's definitely some divorce uh, vibes going in this into this film. You know, he appears, the director appears in the film as himself making the film, and he's separated, you know, in the film. So there's there's a lot of uh, parallels to that. But but the movie itself is just really well done, very cleverly animated. You know, it's a mix of live action and stop motion. Uh, so Marcel lives in a world like ours in Los Angeles, but you know, it, all of the shell stuff is is animated. Very, very affecting movie. I I heard people sobbing as they were laughing, you know, through the movie, through the entire movie. Sobbing in the theater. Actually. You know, just choke, choke, kind of like, oh. <laughs> Anytime Marcel would say something especially profound or cute, they're like, oh. <laughs> kind of that, that choked, like, oh, I want to laugh, but this is so, this is moving. Only at South by Southwest could you fill a theater uh, for a uh, stop motion animation meditation on divorce and loss. Mm-hmm. With with uh, with anim- with cute with Isabella Rossellini <laughs> as the grandmother, you know, very, but it's a very sweet movie. And it, but it's not. I, I I made very clear in the review, like it's not Ziggy. It's not a bunch of platitudes and sweetness and saccharine. It is. It's got some spikes and some sadness and some very very real sense of loss. You know, I mean, the whole movie is about Marcel and his grandmother basically losing their entire community, like all of the shells that they you know that are their family are gone. And they're having to kind of move on from that. So that's really where the movie starts um, and features a, an appearance by Leslie Stahl and the crew from 60 Minutes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, like a live action Leslie Stahl, not an animated show. Yes, absolutely. Interview, you know, doing an interview with with uh, with Marcel. But it's a very sweet. I mean, Jenny Slate absolutely kills the vocal performance. I mean, if you've seen the shorts, you, you know. I mean, she's just gets that character right away. And, and it's just it's just a delight to hear her do that character. Um, and it doesn't do the thing where, you know, when you expand a sketch or a small thing into a feature film where it just drags and doesn't feel like it's worth it. This actually feels like they they hit on something. They hit on a kind of melancholy and a feeling that we're all having of, you know, hopelessness and, and kind of trying to come out of that. Hey, speak for yourself, buddy. I, I, I never feel hopeless or I always have felt hopeless. I don't know. Uh, but but yeah, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, it, it definitely feels like something that's of the moment and uh, South by Southwest is of the moment and it's back and we're back going to the movies. Omar, thank you so much. We will talk to you soon. Thank you, Neil. This was fun. I appreciate it. This is a life Every
All right. Thanks, Omar. Thanks for waiting in line. Thanks for seeing movies. Thanks for covering South by Southwest for us. And thanks to me for covering South by Southwest for us as well. Hopefully we will have a good South by Southwest next year as well. And we'll still be here to talk about it. And also thanks to Rachel Llewellyn for delving into the controversy and debate over Turning Red, which like all animated movies is apparently subject to controversy these days. I don't remember animated movies being controversial when I was younger, but maybe I was just naive and unaware of the discourse. In any case, we cover the discourse. We review films and books and streaming TV here on Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We publish hot, fresh content nearly every day. Thanks for reading the site. Thanks for listening to the show. I will talk at you soon. Slow and sudden miracles Feel of other worlds From our windowsills With the weight of eternity At the speed of light well, At first I thought you said T-Wolf. I'm like, T-Wolf? <laughs> I've never heard of tea wolf. Is that like a wolf who drinks tea? Is like like some anime about a wolf who like does like a Japanese tea ceremony? That's like the more polite version of Teen Wolf. <laughs> Would you like some tea? Would you like some green tea? Oh, I can't. And I turn into a wolf. It's terrible. It started when I was twelve. <laughs> Original Production.